about to reconcile, wreck and wreck and wreck We about to reconcile, bitch. We about to We about to reconcile, we about to reconcile, we about to reconcile, we about to Welcome, 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 ladies and gentlemen, to yet another episode of Reconcile This, coming straight from the streets of Fort Worth. I am your host, the most, Dr. Frederick Gooding Jr., a.k.a. Dr. G, and I'm aided by my co-host, the co-most, the mellifluous, the magnificent, and the marvelous, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the cypher, Mr. Marcellus Perkins. What's happening, my brother? Dr. G, it's another day, another wonderful day in the purple land. How are you? Oh, well, I am super fantastic. Again, uh, thank you for asking. Um, I am excited to uh, get into this conversation that we have today Absolutely. because um, not only are we able to, um, uh, you know, uh, to meet with a person who's from the TC community, because as you know, we've been branching out and talking to people from outside TC community, but um, we're talking to someone, you know, as a historian, I, I, you know, I have a uh, I, get, I get really excited about the concept of history, but we're literally talking to somebody who has made TCU history, yeah. right? And without any further ado, who, to who do I refer? Uh, mm -hmm. I refer, ladies and gentlemen, to none other than uh, the Vice Chancellor for Marketing Communication and the first, we believe, Black individual to be part of the TCU official Chancellor's Cabinet. That would be none other the Miss Tracy Siler Jones. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. And what a great introduction. I, I feel um, really honored to be on the podcast and be in your presence. I've listened to your podcast a lot, and I know it's an international podcast. I know you have international listeners. Yep. So um, that's really great. But yes, thank you so much for the invitation to join you guys today. Well, so just jumping right on in, we assume you have a background in marketing, but for all those curious listeners out there, how do you graduate from college and say, oh, by the way, one day I'd like to be vice chancellor. Like, like <laughs> what are the steps? Like, how does this happen? You to where you're in this incredible groundbreaking uh, position like this, right? And, and if yeah. you could just maybe backfill some of that information, that, that'll help contextualize, um, you know, what, what it is that you're making happen uh, in your position. Yeah, sure. Thanks. I, I tell um, students when I meet with them that your career path is unlikely to be linear. Um, it is probably going to be way curvier instead of just a straight line. So I don't know if I can definitively say that I ever saw myself as a vice chancellor um, at a university. What I can say, though, is that I'd always uh, in my mind wanted to make a difference for people. So that was always my guiding star, if you will. I didn't want to go to work um, and, and do a, a job all day that I didn't feel had impact. And that led me originally, uh, well, originally, originally, I was actually um, 
working in the news media. So I graduated with a degree in journalism and an emphasis in broadcast uh, news and had sort of envisioned a future in the newsroom. And I'm probably going to date myself here, but um, right around that time, I'd worked in the newsroom a little bit. And right around that time, the movie Broadcast News came out. And, you know, it truly was a matter of art imitating life because what happened in that uh, movie was it was all about the the production of news and um, news is a clearly information that people um, need to live their lives and it's important um it, watching that movie what I realized was it wasn't for me because it felt like what we were delivering at that moment and again this was a long time ago what we were delivering at that moment was kind of the, if it leads, it leads type of news. Mm. Uh, so I would go into the newsroom and um, I was a writer. I was not in front of the camera. I was a writer um, trying to figure out if I wanted to go into the, you know, behind the camera or in front of the camera. And I'm, mm. I'm not really in front person. So I always thought I would be behind the camera, like in a producer director role. Um, but but real quick, you're saying there is yeah. something to that idea. If it bleeds, it leads as far as people making conscientious decisions on what would attract more ratings. I, I, you know, again, it's been a long time since I've been in the newsroom, but I do think that a lot of times uh, because of ratings, uh, you certainly want people to tune in and and watch. And I was working at a, at a, at a TV station at the time. So yes, I, I, I do think that there has to be some level of um, information that is of interest to the community. Right. And if, if it, if it bleeds, it leads is sort of an old adage that I heard a long time ago, which is probably more, not, not to say that it has to be violent for it to be, you know, at the top of the news, but it has to be something. The other adage I've heard is it's got to be um, not the dog biting the man, but the man biting the dog. So it has to be something that's going to pull your, your viewers, your listeners, your readers in. Um, and also should be something that helps them, again, use that information for the betterment of their lives. So I, I did see some opportunity in that. Um, that that movie was very similar to Back to Broadcast News, was very similar to what I experienced in the newsroom, because one thing you never want to do on a newscast is go dark. Like, mm. you don't have any video, nothing being okay. said. And um, I remember one day I was in the newsroom, and that actually happened. And I watched the producer come out of the booth. and. He, he was not happy. This is not funny, but I just remember he was not happy um, and super stressed and a lot of yelling. And, you know, this was his personality, but I just, again, young, looking at that, trying to figure out, was this the path I wanted to take? Um, so I started looking at that. In the newsroom, you're always building something new, or at least when I was there again, it was like the newscast is done, then you start again and you start again. And I really wanted a career where I could build on something, mm. have an impact, um, change people's lives, really, and let them go out and have impact as well. Uh, so the, what made me move away from the news, a couple of things. One, one was a, a caller called the news station one night and said, hey, can you do this story? My son is... 18 and he ran away from home. It was around Christmas time. I want to know if you, the newsroom, the news station will hire a private investigator to find my son and then reunite us on the air. Well, ethically, that's not really what we should do. We should not be about, you know, making news. We're about covering the news. And so um, 
I handed the call off to the assignment desk knowing that the answer was going to be no. So um, at that moment, I thought, you know, there's to me, for me and my career field and my career choice, that just wasn't what I wanted to pursue. Uh, and then I ended up uh, leaving that field, getting married, having two great kids, and then um, the marriage did not work out. Well, I realized that at that point, I wasn't going to be able to go back into the newsroom. I didn't want to because of the hours. Um, and I needed something that was a little bit more stable. So I actually ended up uh, with my degree in journalism. Thank goodness I had a degree as a single mom. And I, I um, at that moment, was in Birmingham, Alabama. So I hit the pavement for about six months trying to find a new gig. Uh, because prior to that, I was staying at home with my, with my children. And I was able to find one at the Birmingham YMCA. And I uh, served as the... Um, Actually, I didn't come in in the marketing role. I came in as um, the uh, coordinator for our um, Volunteers in Service to America. It was an after-school program, and we worked with students in various communities in Birmingham, lower-income communities, and we would provide after-school programming for them. So I took that opportunity to really begin to apply what I had learned in school, um, I was really invested in the students who were coming to the after-school program. There were about four or five sites that I had responsibility for. And I was really invested because I wanted this, the, the children who were K through 12 um, to see a future for themselves. Mm -hmm. Many of them were in housing projects mm -hmm. and many of those housing projects, um, the schools associated with those communities were not the schools right down the street. I remember growing up and walking to my school. These schools, and that was, a, I was in California, so it was a unified school district. Birmingham, different, mm -hmm. right? It's not unified. And so they um, they crafted different districts. They carved them out. And so what would happen is that like community is about having your home and having a school nearby where you can go with your parents and do after school things and they can come see and have teacher night. When you start carving it up the way it's carved up in Birmingham or it was, um, that community kind of dissipates and goes away. Mm. So I was trying to establish some vision for these students. Um, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? You could be the president of the United States if you wanted to be. Uh, we ended up partnering Wait, with- you, you talk Oh, Barack is one of your students. Uh, maybe, maybe. That, that, oh my, it could have been. This is breaking news. <laughs> it could have certainly been. But just to provide, you know, the people perish without a vision. Just to provide a vision. Mm. Just to say, mm. you can do whatever you want to do in life. You have to believe in yourself, but you also need the support system. Mm. So we ended up partnering with another um, nonprofit agency that created a garden in one of the other communities. And um, we use that as a way to teach health, as a way to teach math, um, a whole lot of other things. We did after-school, uh, well, not after-school lunches, snacks through the food bank with the student, with the kids in the program, simply because we knew they probably were not getting um, a lot of food at home or they probably had a little bit of food insecurity. Uh, and I'll never forget this one time, and this really made me feel like, oh, I had an impact. Um, we had gone to the garden with some of the, uh, like a family of four or something, and they were being raised by their grandmother. And um, it just so happened that I think we were growing greens and they were ready to be harvested. So we harvested the greens and they took them home. And the grandmother literally just the, for this one little thing, which, you know, I, I thought, gosh, this I don't know if this is really going to be that life changing for her. She had so much gratitude in her heart because these 
the grandchildren that she she was raising um, came and brought food to her, brought, you know, vegetables to her. And she just was thrilled with that. And the kids felt great and she felt great. And I was like, this is really wonderful. So I was really excited uh, about that. And it was a lot of hard work. Uh, mm-hmm. The folks that were working with me who were just having to oversee the after-school programs because it was a Volunteers in Service to America or VISTA, the payment was like next to nothing. Um, okay. So yeah. Right, so it, I was, I mean, you're doing something that's fulfilling, but how do you you know, yeah. uh, you know, do good while doing good. Right. I mean, <laughs> right. Um, yes. Yes. And I was not doing good financially. So it was not sustainable for me right. as a single mom to stay in that role. So I needed to um, begin to look at my horizon and really what could I do to provide for my, um, for my children, mm-hmm. my family at the time, my mother and my sister we're living here in in Texas, and my sister was working in. She actually did end up going into uh, broadcast news, so she was working as an anchor at uh, CBS Eleven. And my mom was in San Antonio, and so I said, "Well, you know, it's time for me to kind of be with my family." And mm-hmm. um, there were some other things associated with the move, but I actually came out to Fort Worth. Um, I guess maybe it was 99 when I moved. And so I came out in the summer and interviewed with TCU. And then I went back home and I I literally took a leap of faith and moved without a job because my wow. fallback plan, <laughs> my fallback plan was to take my kids and go live with my mom, which um, thank goodness my mom was willing to let that, you know, be an option for us. So I moved here without a job, um, hit the pavement again. And about a week before I had to enroll my boys in school and they actually went to spend the summer with grandma in San Antonio. So about a week before I had to enroll them in school, um, my uh, TCU called and they said, we wanna hire you. And so I came in as an assistant director of communications and it's been a big blessing. It's been, you know, like any career, you have your ups and downs and um, sideways and, you know, upside downs. And, you know, I'm certainly no different, but um, it's just been, it's, it's been a wonderful ride. You know, um, Vice Chancellor, one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast is that we are allowed or we're given permission to see the other side of our guests, the the personal side in this workspace, Um, especially for someone like you who typically stands behind the scenes of the storytelling of TCU and the marketing and making sure that we're putting out the, you know, uh, the version of TCU that everyone wants to see. Um, You also are on the other side of, you know, how do we put this in in the perfect frame, but we as individuals have our own stories and our own perspective and own opinions and, and experiences that we bring to us when we come to work. And a lot of times, people don't see that side of our story and they don't see what it took for us to get to that point. They think, oh, this person just arrived and they don't know that before I arrived, I prepared. Before I prepared, I was tested. Before I was tested, I had to do so much to uh, before I got to that point that you don't know that part of my story. So I I really, this is is why I love doing this podcast because it's more than just talking about universities with racism, slavery, and confederacy. That's that's one part of it, but it's also... Mm -hmm. Uh, humanizing the person that is also doing the work and so as I'm listening to you one of the questions that I kind of think through is what are some of those challenges and triumphs you had to endure 
when you got to TCU and, and on that way becoming the first black person, black woman, a woman. There's so many other identities that are intersecting yeah. on that that chancellor side because that is not an easy track to get to. Yeah. By yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. It's so funny. It's yeah, go ahead. Quick though, before you answer uh, a vice chancellor, Mr. Perkins, can you please write down what you just said? I mean, before <laughs> I was we said before I was prepared, I was testing before I was to test. That was that was amazing. Okay, so, I I'm sorry. love that, that's and I important. honestly think that repeats. I mean, that's I that's, okay, that was amazing. I, I think that's almost a daily thing, maybe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I I I think that. Um, so I scoped at TC before I came here, and mm-hmm. and I looked at it, and I thought, gosh, Birmingham, Alabama. What I found, California first, grew up there, raised there, moved to Birmingham, which was, which was interesting because it's very different from California. Um, and there was diversity pretty much it, it, that was that you could literally see in Birmingham. Um, and, and TCU, when I moved here or before I moved here, before I got the position, I, I just was trying to figure out what was the diversity like at the institution. Um, when I got here, I was lucky enough to work with Dr. Cornell Thomas, who oh. at that time was really um, encouraging and advancing diversity on TC's campus. The so I was scholars program, right? Community scholars program was right around the time I got here. Mm-hmm. So I was really excited about that, right? Because there's some connective tissue between the community scholars program and what I was doing for the YMCA when I was in Birmingham, just really going into communities, finding um, students who may or may not see their future or or envision themselves at an institution like TCU. So I was very excited to see Dr. Thomas's work uh, and and I thought it was just wonderful the way he was embraced as a special advisor to the then Chancellor uh, Chancellor Ferrari. Um, so I thought you know that was that was really um, really great. but for me, I think I think there's a couple of things I think about when I when I consider my path and how I've gotten here and what I've experienced along the way. And I, I do want to just say, you know, I think when you start to think about a university experience and its brand, what we really want to try to make sure that we're doing is that we are being um, authentic with a little bit of aspiration, right? Mm-hmm. So when people consider people being students, people being our employees, consider affiliating with TCU, they probably already have some element of identity that correlates to who we are. So maybe it's they like the the personal size because they themselves find that they thrive in an environment where they can be connected with others. Um, Maybe it's at a school where you have a big um, athletic presence, which as we all know, we just had a really great football season. And so right. for some, they're like, yes, I want to be connected to that kind of identity. But we want to be authentic in that. We want to make sure that we are telling TC stories so that if people, when they come here, students, employees, they then say, yes, this is the promise they're making. And we then can deliver on that promise because it's it's what we what we do. We we do what we say we will do, right? So so when we um, think about the stories and um, the messaging that we want to tell about the institution, it is done from a, a place of research. So we do extensive research. We have done extensive research on the university's um, 
you know, brand and, and really looked at the university's experience and what can we say, what should we say that really represents who we are as an institution so that therefore, again, people coming to us will say, yes, that is the experience I had. That's the authentic, authenticity part, the authentic part, excuse me. Um, the aspirational part, uh, I would say for me, when I first got to TCU, I, I realized that the diversity certainly was a piece of that aspirational um, component for the institution. There was a desire uh, to move in that direction, to become more diverse. Um, when I first got to the institution, I was in, in the building I was in, I think there might've been maybe three or four people of color, black people in, in particular working in my building. Hmm. I can't say that today, which is fantastic because again, we're moving that aspirational piece into the authentic section now or area now. Um, but I but I feel like for us and for the institution and for any organization, diversity is always a journey. It's never a destination. You have to keep building on that. You have to keep working on that. So I think that some of the challenges I, I, I ran into might've been, you know, um, if we were developing and this, this did happen, we developed some materials uh, for the institution and uh, there's this great book called Four in a Tree. Um, or three in a tree, I can't remember, sorry, I can't remember the, the correct title, but it sort of uh, describes and, and delves into how marketing communication professionals are always looking for diversity, right? They want to show a Black student, a white student, a Hispanic right. student, Asian student on their covers, right? right? And oftentimes or, it feels forced. A lot of times it can feel forced. And right. there have been universities that have gotten in trouble for Photoshopping. Like Wisconsin. Yeah, <laughs> people of color into their materials. Um, now the challenge is we only have so much time and so much material to produce that we have to take advantage of that and show that diversity as many ways as possible. Right. Being authentic with that diversity is also important, right? We're not going to Photoshop. So this one particular brochure that we had produced had three of our students on the cover. They were our students. One of the students was black. I believe one was a white female and one was a white male. And we got feedback that we were we were not being accurate with how we were telling TC's story around diversity because you had three students on the cover and therefore one was black. So that meant a third of your students were, were black. Mm. Um, and so I learned very quickly that we needed to kind of figure out how do we want to tell that diversity story uh, I think over time we have gotten better again because of research. Um, I have been asking colleagues to tell me, you know, what do you think? Because I don't want to be an N of one to make these decisions that are around diversity. I'd rather go to some of our experts um, and say, you know, how is this right? Here's what we would like to do. Here's how we would like to present it. I think our team has gotten better in that space on on multiple levels. Um, working with the Race and Reconciliation Initiative project was mm. a, a big, um, in my mind, important project, not just for the research that was being done, but for the conversations that were happening mm. around race and reconciliation at TCU, because I think sometimes those conversations were happening, but maybe they were happening off to the side. People thought felt that they weren't being heard or listened to. And so this um, initiative, I think, was a, a, a turning point for us when we uh, thought about telling our, our story of diversity, our diversity story here at TCU. And, and I appreciate 
um, you being candid with us because it's not an easy job from what you described. Right. You're talking about a predominantly white institution. And so the idea is you want to be aspirational, but authentic, as you indicated. So if you're trying to promote this idea of we're open to additional inclusivity, now you have feedback that you're overdoing it. But then if you're using the same three students over and over in pictures, you know, just from different angles, you know, are you now patronizing and exploiting? So, I mean, it sounds like it's difficult. So with that being said, earlier your comments really resonate with me because news sounds very similar to history in that something will happen, you know, an event in time will happen, but there are conscious, deliberate decisions made as to how to present what happened, right? And so that's where perspective comes into play. That's where memory comes into play. That's where priority comes into play. And so when we're talking about history and news, you are leading the charge and telling TCU's story over the past 150 years with the, I'm gonna see if I can get it the first time, sesquicentennial. Yes, it? very I, I, good. I, I, I sesquicentennial, very good. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, you say yeah? Okay. You did uh, it right, yes, that was great. Thank you very much. So the idea is um, when you talk about such a broad span mm -hmm. of time, what are the conversations you have? How do you go about making decisions? Who do you include? I mean, because I'm sure inevitably there's no one right answer and someone's going to have something to say about whatever it is that you decide. But yeah. but, but with this campaign, as Mr. Perkins likes to ask, what is the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves? Yep. You know, that's really great. I, I um this sesquicentennial planning has been interesting because we have um, started planning for it pre-COVID and then mm. COVID hit and everything, as you know, kind of that wasn't um, immediate, that didn't need an immediate focus was put a little bit on the back burner. So when we picked this back up again in 2020, I, I, I guess I'm a, I'm a big fan of research, trying to understand you know, the make so that we can make informed decisions using data um, and that we're not just sort of assuming that we know what people want to hear or how we feel people want to get involved. And so we did conduct some research when we picked it back up in 2020. Um, I'm sorry, not in 2020, that was COVID. So it was after 2020, it was probably 2021. Um, but we did do some research and we, um, for me, I looked around a little bit at what other universities were doing uh, for their sesquicentennials or other big milestone celebrations. And my team helped me develop um, a framework that we could use for the uh, structure of the of the the work that needed to be done that would be including uh, inclusive of camp campus members because one of the things that the research showed was that people were like we want to be involved right. we don't look just at the past or the future you got to look at the present and involve us as well so as we were putting those subcommittee that subcommittee structure together we made sure to include a diversity equity and inclusion subcommittee um, that was actually a request that I made because I think at one point we were we didn't want to get too many subcommittees. So at one point there was a consideration of putting the uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion embedding that in another subcommittee. And I asked that we 
actually break that out because I felt like for the institution, that was that is an important um, subcommittee, given the strategic direction of the university, given again the work that has been done with race and reconciliation initiative. It felt like it would not um, be appropriate to uh, not pull that out and make sure that we are we were um, being thoughtful and mindful of including everyone. In so this. just to make sure we're clear. So our recent journey with reconciliation played a factor in some of the strategic decisions you made in the present. Absolutely, oh, absolutely. Wow. Um, and and to that point where it really made a difference and I struggled with this because I said, you know, it's, it's, I think Dr. G, you've said this before uh, about the complexity of history and the complexity of people um, who are living in uh, through their, their time. And we've talked about the Clark brothers and probably some of the, some of the complexity of their background. Right. Um, but the story that we are wanting to share with people is not just about the foundation of the institution, but also the work that has been recently uncovered through the Race and Reconciliation Initiative. Uh, it would have, to me, been a pretty hollow celebration if we did not lift that information up, but do it in a way where there was enough context so that people could understand how this fits into the story of the institution. So we have, um, with our immersive experience that's opening in a couple of weeks, um, we have dedicated a section to race and reconciliation. And while it was a historical look back, we are putting the results of that race and reconciliation in the present. So in the immersive experience, we have a past, present, and future section. Hmm. And so the race and reconciliation work is being um, will be displayed in the present. Because again, even though it was a look back, as you said, you know, that history is informing our present. Mm -hmm. And so we will tell that story of, you know, here's here, here's what's been researched and discovered. Um, we'll give people the opportunity to download the first and second year report, to listen oh. to the Reconcile This podcast. Um, and, and just to really, if they haven't heard about it, because as you all know, we had a, a really nice um, number of folks come to the very first race and reconciliation reconciliation day in mm -hmm. April. Um, but there are, we have new people, right? We get new people at universities all the time. So mm -hmm. every year it's a new group of students coming in and a new group of employees coming in. And so we want to make sure that people are aware of that story uh, if they haven't heard it yet. So yes, I definitely did not want to uh, leave any of that out. Wanted to be able to provide or find a space where we could have a fuller telling of that story so that there's context there. Um, mm. so, that, so that's certainly one part of, of what we're doing in that immersive experience, but we're being very mindful of um, making this celebration as inclusive as possible. Mm. And that means, you know, pulling in as many people as we can, telling full stories uh, as much as possible, and, uh, you know, really kind of helping people understand how this institution has changed. I mean, it's changed since I've been here, right? Since right. I arrived in 99. So it's really, it's really fantastic to be able to tell a different kind of story now. Yeah. Well, one, I just want to say it's very rewarding to hear that when your work has not been done in vain. So, you know, I definitely, uh, we appreciate you, you know, if you just one, helping us because this was never a individual effort or just an RI effort. There were so many hands uh, that made Absolutely. the load very light for us and uh, marketing Absolutely. your team 
really, really worked. I mean, all of those amazing flyers uh, that you saw, <laughs> especially in those first two years, um, I tried for the first two weeks and it just was not cutting it. <laughs> we got the professionals, <laughs> we got the professionals to give us color code, and, and yes. I was like, "This is absolutely perfect." So you know, definitely, standards. I, you know, I, <laughs> <laughs> the website, all that good stuff. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, def definitely appreciate that. And it's looking like stars. Right, I know, right? <laughs> yes. Like we actually knew what we were doing, right? <laughs> yes. Well, uh, but I think it helps us get closer to that that part of being authentic and, right, and yeah, having right. those conversations so important for us. Um, and I think you all did a great job of heading that up, not only again looking at the research and and finding or uncovering um uh, really important information, but you also allowed people to have conversations around topics that maybe we weren't having conversations around before. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of like one of the point, the last questions that I wanted to end on is just how important is that transparency when it comes to the art of reconciliation? Um, because I think for a lot of times, even on an individual relationship to relationship, people's relationship with institutions, whatever the case may be, we try to hold people and things accountable before there was ever any transparency being able to be shared. And so when we are allowed to have that transparency, like this is our full story. This is who I fully am as a person. So now you can hold me to accountable to who I said I am and who I want to become, not who the perception of who you think I should be. Yes. But now you have the full story so you can make that fully informed decision. So for you, um, as this wonderful storyteller, as you, you graced us with, but also um, in your professional world of being in charge of marketing communications for an entire institution, how important is that transparency aspect when it comes to the, the work of reconciliation? Oh my goodness. I'm not sure if I'm going to be eloquent in my response. I had a lot of things um, going through my mind as you were leading up to your question. Uh, one thing I'll say just, um, uh, and I kind of want to go back to what you talked about, kind of the intersectionality of, of people, right? And who we are and what we bring into, into the spaces that we um, that we exist in on a daily basis. So me as a, a black woman, um, you mm. know, wanting to bring all of that forward and being transparent in that. If I were to say for me personally, sometimes it can be hard being the first in anything, mm. right? It can be hard mm. on both sides. Um, and, and so you, you, you strive for that perfection. You strive to um, be everything to everyone. And then you realize oh. at the end of the day, I, I'm just not, I'm not going to be perfect hundred percent of the right. time. I, I, I feel like being the first there's pressure in that, right? right? There's pressure in that because people are looking at you to be a role model. They're looking at you um, to see if you can do the job. Well, they're looking at you to, you know, see if, if you're going to mess up and what happens, mm. you know, what's your bounce like, can you bounce back? And sometimes, you know, I bounce pretty well and other times I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm sort of flat, but I think that's part of the, part of the, um, the job, but I, but I don't, I, I think that for, um, organizations, transparency, again, I'll, I'll go back to, um, uh, this idea of, um, the being as authentic as we can be and, and, in that authenticity, transparency is key, right? Because if we're not, if we want to say, you know, this is who we are and this is what we're 
doing, but people get here and go, ah, I I don't think so. Or, oh, I didn't know about that. Then I don't think we're doing the work that we should be doing in terms of um, really delivering a service to the people that are here to learn from us, to um, get an education and then to go out and, and, and make a difference in the world. So, so I do think that transparency is key in the daily work that we, that we do. Um, There's a lot of information out there. So Mm -hmm. a lot of people uh, can find out what they want to find out about TCU by going to any one of the social media platforms that's available. So it behooves an organization to be as transparent as possible, because if you're not, Hmm. um, then people will, there's a vacuum that gets created in, in the, in the digital world or in the world today, where if you're not um, actively sharing your story and, and, and stating your truth, then people will take that and, and, and run with it all sorts of different kinds of ways. I mean, I think we, we see that everywhere Mm -hmm. Um, and it is the world in which we live. Now, of course we have some some um, opportunities, not opportunities, but we have some guidelines, of course, for us, if we're in the middle of certain things that we can't really discuss, then what we will do is we will say, yes, the university is aware. I mean, this is just in general, it's not what we say really right now, but yeah, yes, you know, the university is aware and um, then provide them with the information that we can. So, so it is important to be as transparent as possible to share what you can uh, because it builds trust. And when you don't have trust, um, then I think most organizations and, and the people who work for them have difficulties. Yeah. You know, and I think everything that you're saying really underscores this idea of we shouldn't be afraid of the truth, right? You know, what we've been saying all along is that we should embrace it and not erase it. And by doing so, it actually gives us more control over our narrative, as opposed to having that space where people will fill it in with, right. with misinformation oftentimes. Um, right. And along those lines, um, I think what's related, I wanted to compliment you all for how you handled the um, rise, if you would, to national um, you know, prominence, or at least uh, discussion with the, uh, the, the football championship. And I believe the the post the message that you all posted immediately after the game on Monday was uh, thank you to the fans, right? Yes. And this idea of um, the record breaking support for you know the the frogs uh, arriving at the game and in the in the first couple of paragraphs just mentioning the score, but then moving on to the idea that you know in addition to the game there was this just crescendo of support, good feeling, and goodwill that these young men, uh, mostly African-American, had generated, right? And and I think, you know, that's an example of what you're talking about. Would you not agree? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Our students and our student athletes, every day, they are pouring their hearts out. and, And we all know that it was a great, remarkable football season. They had resilience see that they had resiliency and fight and um, just a desire to do well. So yeah, we want to make sure that again, that we are telling that story, that we are supporting them, that we are telling them that we are proud. 
Uh, and also since we've done this um, leveraging our, our, our visibility and athletics for um, the entirety of the institution, we've done this since probably 2009. It's certainly uh, gotten advanced recently here. I have a, have a great team that really helped us do this, but it is really important to thank people for supporting us, to say mm -hmm. thank you. I think people have lost that art sometimes and that gets lost in the shuffle. But anytime we have intensity around TCU's name, especially with athletics, we're gonna leverage it. So that's definitely what we do with the, the uh, media buys that we do, the advertising that you see in the airports and the newspapers, right. uh, and also the engagement that we've had on the various social media platforms, just really uh, making sure people are aware. And then also introducing them to TCU and the other aspects of the institution. And speaking of intensity, uh, we're very appreciative that despite all the intensity and the additional attention and, and spotlight, that according to what you've shared with us, you're not afraid to still figure out the best way to tell the truth. And that's something that we support as we journey down this pathway to reconciliation. And so uh, we just want to say thank you. Uh, for that which is that you do do. Uh, we know there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. We probably need a part two for the real conversations that happen. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yes, yes, but, happy. But, um, right, so stay tuned, y'all. But in, in the meantime, we would just like to, to thank you for uh, continuing to help tell that story um, in a thoughtful, uh, caring, and truthful, transparent manner. And, and again, from everything that you said, um, you know, good things can come from the Birmingham YMCA, right? You know, that, that's, that's the bottom line I'm walking away with. And so to all the listeners out there, uh, keep doing the best you can with what you have. I cannot promise what will ultimately happen as a result of our enterprise in studying TC's relationship with slavery, racism, and the Confederacy. But I can pledge to you that we are doing the best we can with what we have. We're about to reconcile, tell them to get off my style. We're about to reconcile, 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 reconc